universal recognition that life is not always what we hoped it might be. We've got to be real about that. We could uh, quote from countless authors and poets about that, but uh, seeing as it was Rabbi Burns' day this week, we'll quote from Tamashanter. But pleasures are like poppies spread. You seize the flower, its bloom is shed. Or like the snowfalls in the river, a moment white, then melts forever. Or like the Borealis race, that flit ear you can point their place. Or like the rainbow's lovely form, a vanishing amid the storm. No man can tether time or tide. Some, something in us says there must be more than this. Well, the Bible would say there is. And we are about to get a reading from Lizzie, who is going to read um, from up here. And so during our series in John, what we've been doing is uh, we've been asking people to stand uh, because we want to re- see God's word for what it is, a revelation of him. And so we want to invite you all to stand for the, our reading today. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Excellent. Do take your seats. All right, so verse 35 begins the next day. It's a wee phrase that seems incidental enough. Not much worth pointing out there, surely. But we need to get familiar with how John the Evangelist loves to write. There's almost always something else going on, almost always something more to it. And this time through a new week that something life-altering is happening to the world through. Here's a reminder of John's opening to this biography of his, of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He took us back to Genesis 1, to the very beginning, before anything was anything, to that first seven days of creation. Then across the rest of those first 18 verses in this biography, he gave us a mind-blowing view of who this word, the subject of the biography, is the eternal God, creator of all things, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And now John is showing us, as the beginning of Jesus' ministry approaches, that Jesus has come to bring about a new genesis, new life, a new creation. 
Back in verse 19, John starts leading us through a week of events, which will culminate at a wedding in Cana. Scan down with me if you have your Bibles. Verse 19 begins on this first day. His first day was the day that Matty led us through last week, if you were here. The day that John the Baptist was questioned by religious elites from Jerusalem. Verse 29 is the next day. It says, the next day. That's when Jesus appeared to John. John the Baptist sees him and he declares, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 35 is our passage and it begins on day three. On the fifth day, Oh, well, let me explain that first of all. So third day, and how do we get to the fourth day? We get to the fourth day because Andrew and an unnamed disciple, probably John the evangelist himself, go spend an overnight with Jesus into day four. So we're on day four. Then on the fifth day, verse 43, Jesus heads to Galilee where he finds Philip, who was to become one of his followers. Then finally, in chapter two, after three days of quiet, that begins on the third day, which in Jewish numeracy of the time was counted fifth day, you start on that day, sixth day, seventh day. And then we have the wedding in Cana. Hmm. I wonder why the wedding, this great big celebration, takes place after some silence and it's on the third day. What might happen on the third day later in the gospel? where we have no noise, nothing. And it was followed by a big, life-altering event. John shows us that like the seven days of creation we read about in Genesis, leading up to Adam and Eve dwelling together in a garden temple, these seven days lead up to Jesus' first miraculous sign when he does something that signals he is bringing about a new start for all humanity. There's a lot more going on in the passage that Lewis is going to explain to us in a couple of weeks' time. But one of the things that is going on is that Jesus comes and he turns water into wine. And when he does, we are supposed to remember what wine is all about in the Bible. It's about abundance. It's about teeming life. It's about the fruit of the vine. The creation Adam was given to steward was to turn from fruitful paradise to death and a thorny curse. And we know that. That's the experience of this isn't enough. Things go wrong. This isn't everything that I want it to be. There's injustice and pain and suffering. There's death. But John is saying that this time a new creation, stewarded not by Adam but by Jesus, will produce an abundance of life and blessing. John is showing us that the new beginning that comes in Jesus is for all of us. He's giving us little signs of life-giving power that comes to this eternal, eternal God-made flesh. Not the pretend stuff, not pretend life, not the life that never really quite makes it, but real life, the life we were made for. He wants us to see that this new creation Jesus is bringing is coming to us. And that this broken version of creation that we find ourselves in will be replaced by a new creation, an everlasting kingdom of pure joy. John even tells us near the end of his biography in chapter 20 
verse 31, that he writes this whole thing so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Praise God for a new week, for Jesus' new creation, where we all can find new life in this world of brokenness and death. So what's actually going on here? We're in day three of John's new symbolic new creation narrative. And John the Baptist shouts out, Look, the Lamb of God. He's repeating what he's already been proclaiming. This man is the Messiah. Or as the Greeks would say it, he's the Christ. He is the anointed one, the king, the one that has come to rescue us, the one who has come to bring justice and salvation to all, the one who can make all things right and bring renewed life to a dying world. Two of the disciples are with him, John's disciples, and they immediately follow Jesus. Now you might think, oh, poor John, what's he done wrong? Poor guy, he's clearly been a decent rabbi. These feelings hurt that they've just kind of disappeared and gone off with Jesus. But from what we know of John, this was exactly what he wanted. He wanted them to graduate from being his disciples to being the disciples of the Messiah. He was a prophetic rabbi whose teaching was focused on the coming of the Messiah. The text actually doesn't say so, but he might even have given them a bit of a prod. Hey, look, he's over there. Like, that's the Messiah I've been talking about. Like, go. But it's important to say, we could get confused here in timelines and what's going on, that this is actually just a first step for these two. I don't think this is actually the moment that these two disciples of John the Baptist become disciples of Jesus. The word used for follow here is like the English version. It can mean to simply follow someone or something, like you get a a scent of Greg's sausage rolls in the air. And you follow it, and you do a naughty thing, and you buy a sausage roll. Um, Or it can mean that you're going to really follow after something in life. Make your life about something like it is often used in John's Gospel. This time, I think it's more the, I'm interested, I'd like to find out a bit more. And it seems likely that this all takes place while Andrew and Simon Peter are still working for their father's fishing business. And probably are John the Baptist's disciples seasonally, which was actually pretty common at the time. So the way then that they immediately drop their nets when we read in the other Gospels when they decide to follow Jesus, or Jesus calls them even more than what's said here and much more explicit about Jesus calling them as disciples, we can say, well, that makes a bit more sense. They've had previous interactions with Jesus. They understand who he is. And then they drop their nets and follow him as his disciples. And that might be you. Perhaps you were invited by a friend, you're intrigued, but it's one step towards perhaps following Jesus. You haven't quite got to the point where you're ready to take the plunge, so to speak. Jesus asks, what do you want? He gets right to the point. He doesn't mess about it. The King James Version says, what seek ye? This is the first in a three-part little interaction that we're going to look at between Jesus and these disciples. And it isn't to show 
uh, just how these two end up having an overnight stay with Jesus and hanging out with him. It's here because John wants us to get thinking about a few things as we keep reading through John and discovering the life that Jesus is offering us. The first is about what we really want in life. Jesus doesn't mess about. People show interest and he wants to know, why are you here? Are you just checking out this miraculous sign or are you coming along for a good old feed or is it something more? What do you really want? So ask yourself, why are you here? What do you really want? What do you really want in life? The response, part two, of this little interaction seems a bit strange. These two disciples ask a question in response to a question. But perhaps those of us brought up in Glasgow will be well-placed to understand what they're trying to say. Teacher, where are you staying? We lived down south on the south coast for almost five years. And while we were there, I'd occasionally forget where I was and I'd ask, oh, where'd you stay? Confusion written all over their face. Well, 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 what do you mean? Um, uh, where, where are you from? Uh, where do you live? Uh, where's home? Uh, uh, they had no idea what I was on about. But for us, it was, uh, where are you from? Where are you really from? Where do you stay? Where's your bit? It's closer to what we mean in Glasgow. It's not just, where do you rest your head tonight? It's, where have you come from? And actually, even more than what we think of in Glasgow, because where you are uh, from in Palestine at the time had a far stronger tie to your identity, to who you are in a patriarchal society. Where do you abide? Jesus' response makes a bit more sense now. It's not just a strangely worded invite to the place he is living, although it partly is that, because for Jesus' hospitality and opening up your life, um, come together. Come and you will see, he says. And it could actually also be interpreted, come and consider, reflect on. And it builds on a phrase common in the Jewish teaching of the time, come and hear. Now, when a Jewish person heard that phrase, they immediately thought of halacha. Probably butchered the pronunciation of that. My apologies if you're familiar with it. Or the way. That's what it means, the way. Used to describe the fullness of Jewish living and teaching. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am all the revelation of God in a person. I am the Word become flesh, and I am inviting you to me and the place where I abide. That's what that word literally means when he talks about staying, when they ask the question about staying, with my Father. So come and see that I am the way. Come and see that I am the fulfillment of all the scriptures. Come and see that I am home. So take what Jesus is saying, so take what John is saying all together. Here's a new creation come through Jesus, 
symbolized in this week, laid out for us, that culminates with water turning into wine, this sign of blessing, the fruit of the vine. These two disciples of John then ask, where do you abide? Then Jesus invites them to come and see that he is the way. John is dropping in hints for us to see who he really is, who Jesus really is. And then when we get to chapter 15, we will be able to piece all of this together. And Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Where does Jesus stay? Where does he abide? Where does life come from? Life comes from him, and his Father is the gardener. He's with his Father. He is from his Father. He is from heaven. Then he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying, come home and find life. It's an invite to you today. Come and abide where you belong and where true life exists, the life you've been designed for, this new creation that I am bringing is a redemption of the old creation. It's it's a renewal of all things. Come and be a part of that because all of that comes through me, through Jesus. Trust in him and you will receive life. You'll find your true home and you'll find that in him, life suddenly makes sense. Imagine it. You're out and about on a field trip with your teacher. And before you know it, you've been invited to sit and eat and talk with Jesus into the wee hours. We don't get to hear the conversation they have, but we can confidently say that Andrew and the other disciple will have felt more at home around the table with Jesus that night than on any other night of their lives. In Jesus' conversation and love, we're given a glimpse, we are given this glimpse of humanity in its truest form. Life itself made them dinner and sat down across the table. When it was finally time to leave, Jesus has clearly made an impression. Like Mary Magdalene will do at the resurrection in chapter 20, the very first thing that Andrew does is to run to Simon Peter, I have seen the Lord. That's what Mary will say. Andrew says, we have found the Messiah. Began with John the Baptist, the Lamb of God. He continues with Andrew, I have found the Messiah. Andrew receives an introduction to Jesus and then immediately passes on the introduction to others. Didn't you love what Jess brought earlier and that encouragement? Hey, there might be so many people that want to know about Jesus and they're, they're, and they're unsure about whether they can talk to you about him. Just be bold and do it. Be like Andrew, be like John. May well be here because someone invited you to come and see them get baptized. They're being an Andrew. They're extending the welcome of Jesus to you, and so do we. It's this bring people to Jesus principle that Billy Graham adopted when he came to Glasgow in 1955. 
16,000 people filled the Kelvin Hall for two weeks. It's two weeks? Oof. Six weeks. Six weeks straight. Every single seat was full. Then they moved it to Hamden. 90,000 people came. It had such an impact on church attendance in Glasgow that in 1960, it was up 50% since 1954. Even Barlini Prison saw their weekly gathering of 50 jump to 300 plus. Billy Graham called it the Andrew Principle that was this kind of secret to the success. Now we know it was the power of the Holy Spirit. It was God doing something. But this Andrew Principle was seriously important for how God did it. For months, they invited people in churches to, inv- to pray for their friends, pray for family members, and then invite them along to the meetings. On that first night in the Kelvin Hall, they had been warned. Glaswegians, don't come forward in meetings. This is not America. Okay, Billy. Billy Graham felt God prompt him to do it anyway. His biography recounts his silence when he did. He decided to wait. Closed his eyes and prayed. Then, after several moments of silence, shuffling feet, thousands of Andrews had invited thousands of Simon Peters. Friends and family poured to the front. On that first night alone, 460 people had an encounter with Jesus and decided to follow him. And the pattern continued. For those of us who know Jesus, Probably, and Andrew came into your life. And we want to be Andrews for those of us who know Jesus in 2023. For those of us who aren't there yet, who don't know him yet, we're praying that you become the shuffling feet. When you choose to follow Jesus home and continue to follow his radical way, you will be taken on an adventure of faith that is not your choosing. When Simon arrives with Andrew, Jesus announces, without any pleasantries it seems, I will call you Peter. It means the rock. Not that overpaid actor who used to be a wrestler, but the one who Jesus built the church upon. At this point, Peter has done nothing to impress Jesus. He doesn't even get to say hi, which I imagine he would have rehearsed on the way there. I mean, this Andrew says he's this Messiah. I better work out what I'm going to say to him when I meet him. Before any word came out of his mouth or any impressive act of service, Jesus called him to be the rock. By the end of his life, he was used to build the most powerful and organic movement the world's ever seen. The church. Two billion adherents today. He didn't even need to send his CV. Who knows what God has for you? But he gets to decide. And it's a great adventure. So put your trust in him. And he will give you a life beyond what you can even begin to imagine. 
and then keep trusting him. It can be easy to trust him for a moment and then we get carried away with what the world wants us to focus on. Maybe this could be a moment for you where you say, you know what? I gave my life to Jesus and I was baptized and I told the world but I've faded. I've faded from that vision that God has for me. I've stopped trusting him in the way that I should. I'm going to trust him and his plans and not my own.